Our text for this afternoon is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, and this is the word of God. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelled in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they're glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Pray with me again, friends. Lord, please add your blessing, heart-changing, life-changing blessing to our study of your word this afternoon. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In the beginning, God created everything that is. He spoke. And the universe came into existence. Light, matter, time, all responded to the voice of God calling them to be. And the highest of God's creation. I love asking children this, if any young people know. What's God's favorite thing he made? Who knows? People. The highest of God's creation, he says, is humanity. Mankind made in the image of God. When God created people in his image, he created us with a purpose. All human beings exist for the purpose of displaying the glory of God to a watching universe. We're called by God to demonstrate his character of purity and kindness, mercy and justice, grace and love. And I don't know But I'm going to bet that you know that none of us has ever lived up to that calling. Would you guys agree that that's true? That you have yet to live up to displaying the absolute perfection of God perfectly? Well, the first people that God made rebelled against him. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve decided that they could better rule their own lives than God. And they disobeyed the single command that they were given. That sin plunged our world into chaos. Sin, failing to follow God, resulted in death, in sorrow, in gloom, darkness, and all forms of evil. But when God responded to the sin of the first people that he made, He did so by revealing a plan 
that he devised before he ever created. God knew what humanity would do, how they would rebel against him, and God planned as part of God's ultimate plan to demonstrate his justice and his mercy in his creation. As that plan unfolded, it all unfolded around a single promise. God would send someone into the world to save his children. God would send someone to set right what's gone wrong in the world because of our rebellion. God would send a rescuer. And things weren't always all dark, at least. God was gracious. The promise of God and the mercy of God on the people in the garden, that hinted at the hope that was to come. And God showed his kindness to, to Adam and Eve and to their descendants time and time and time again. Think about this. God allowed them to have children and continue the human race. He didn't have to do that. God allowed people to experience joy. He repeated his promise of one to come who would be the one to set things right. He promised that the one to come was going to come out of a nation he would make called Israel, out of the tribe of Judah in that nation. And no matter how often people and powers tried to prevent God's plan from coming to pass, God kept on preserving his people to preserve his promise. And here we are today, and we actually know both how God made and how God fulfilled that promise that he had made so long ago. That fulfillment, that sending of the rescuer is the story of Christmas. This season that we are in, properly understood, is about us thanking God and celebrating that God sent someone into the world to pay for our sins, to cleanse us, to transform us, and to make us into his very own children. This is a season for rejoicing in the faithfulness of God. How do you do that? Scripture, singing, and feasting. How many of you are pro-feasting? Amen. It's good. Eat good food and know that it reminds you of the goodness of your God. That's good news, isn't it? It's Christmas time. And many people are having a great Christmas season because to so many people, this is the most wonderful time of the year with the kids jingle-belling and everyone telling you be of good cheer. But not everybody looks forward to this time of the year. You know that too, don't you? To some people, the Christmas season is a time of darkness and gloom. To some, while many around them have great joy, they only feel emptiness. Perhaps it's the haunting memory of a loved one who's not with you anymore. Perhaps it's a disappointment in your life circumstance. You never became what you wanted to be. Maybe it's somebody who wishes they had a family to share the season, but the Lord hasn't given you a spouse or 
Perhaps you are a couple and there aren't children and you wish there were, or maybe you wish you lived somewhere else or had a better job or you looked different or you know how it works. Fact is, there are many people who weep during this time of the year. What do you do with the gloom? What do you do, whether you love Christmas or whether you don't, you face gloom at some point in your life. Anybody here never hurt? Anybody here never sorrow or fear? How do we gain victory over a darkness that sometimes threatens to make its way into our very hearts and chill our souls? God has an answer to that question for you, my friends. And it's in a very familiar passage for this time of year. We're going to look at this passage we read in Isaiah, and we're going to find three points as we see what I'm calling the victory of Christmas, the victory of God over the gloom of this life. Now, let me make a little side note so no one's wondering about it. We actually studied this passage together as a church in 2015. So if some of you who were here that long ago are going, this sounds familiar. Yeah, it does. There will be some new things. Don't worry about that. But you may have the points already written down. That just means you're ahead of your neighbors. It's good. But there, I promise you, will be encouragement for all of us as we visit this passage, either again or for the first time. Point number one, hear God's promise to overcome the gloom. Hear God's promise to overcome the gloom. Even before we put some scriptures to look at, it's pretty obvious that first verse in Isaiah 9, we're in the middle of a discussion I mean, the chapter opens with the word but. That indicates that we are hearing a contrasting point to what was just said. And when we study scripture, when you see therefores, becauses, or but, or howevers, you need to be sure that you look at those things and handle the text in its context to handle it correctly. You will never hear us stop telling you, look at the whole thing in context. Well, from chapters 7 through 9 of Isaiah, that's the context. God's been communicating something to the people of Judah. And we need to understand the history here so we can see both the gloom and the promise that follows it. First, You don't know the broad history of the nation of Israel, and not everybody does. I want you to realize that we know God chose Israel to be his nation, carrying his promise of the rescuer to come. But by the time the nation of Israel was on its fourth king, the nation was divided into two separate kingdoms. Israel was the northern part, sometimes called Ephraim, and then the southern was called Judah. And Judah 
was the group that carried the promise of God that he would send a rescuer into the world. And if you don't know, the word Jew or Jewish comes from the word Judah. That's where we get that word from. Well, Israel, the northern kingdom, often opposed Judah. They even threatened through oppression and idolatry to disrupt the promise that God had made. Part of the book of Isaiah tells of a time in the history of Judah that some people refer to historic brainiacs as the Syro or Syro Ephraimite crisis. Now, I'm guessing that as you came to church today, the first thing you thought is you would hear the phrase Syro Ephraimite crisis used at least once. Around 745 BC, the empire of Assyria. That's where the city of Nineveh was. Assyria grew dramatically in power under the leadership of a man named Tiglath-Pileser III. And the two kingdoms north of Judah decided they wanted to get together, unite their power so they could defend against the rising Assyrian threat. And the kingdoms that I'm talking about here are Israel, also called Ephraim, and the kingdom of Syria. Syria is not Assyria. I'm sorry they sound alike. I can't do anything about it. It's just language. Syria is where Damascus was, if that helps you. Well, the United Kingdoms of Syria and Ephraim threatened to come down into Judah, remove the Judean king from the throne, and force the southern kingdom to join them to battle the rising threat of the Assyrians. And in Isaiah 7, probably around the year 734 B.C., God promised Ahaz, the king of Judah, that though the people of Judah were in danger of being overrun by the combined armies of Syria and Ephraim, God was not going to let it happen. And that promise that God made them contains an even greater promise. Look at Isaiah 7, verses 14 to 16. And remember, this is in the context of a kingdom that's in danger of having its northern neighbors come sweep their king away and take their military resources. Isaiah 7, 14 says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign that he's going to do this right. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to choose the evil, or refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. You know, some prophecies in the Bible have more than one fulfillment. Sometimes the words of a prophet refer to something that happens rather quickly. And at the same time, those prophetic words can point to something much greater that will ultimately fulfill the prophecy in the more distant future. A child will be born. Those words actually have two fulfillments. And one of the fulfillments of those words is a promise that God made to the king through Isaiah that sometime really soon, a child was going to be born in the land of Judah, and before that boy is very old at all, the dangerous armies of Syria and Ephraim are going to be wiped out. 
Look at Isaiah 8, verses 3 through 4. This will probably be one of your favorite verses ever. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Maharshalal Hashbaz. If only I were going to have one more child. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So the near fulfillment, the close fulfillment of that promise from Isaiah 7, 14 is right here in chapter 8. A child was born. Isaiah had a son and his name was Maharshalal Hashbaz. That actually means swift to the prey. It's like sick em, go get em. That's what it means. And it symbolically points to the fact that God is going to send in an army to go get those enemies of his people and his plan. God's going to send someone to Sikkim to go get the Ephraimites and the Syrians so they cannot threaten Judah. And before that boy, who, by the way, has the longest name in the Bible, for you Bible trivia fans... Before he's old enough to know good from evil, God is going to defeat Ephraim, Israel, and Syria, and he will leave Judah in peace. But for the people who are part of the northern kingdom, the people who sided with them, the crushing defeat of Israel was going to be a very bad, terrible experience. Well, what God commanded the people of Judah to do when they heard this was sit back, trust him, and watch God take care of business. By the way, anybody want to guess if they were actually good at doing that? What would your guess be? Do you think the people of Judah sat back and left things alone like God told them to? Nope. How do you know? Because I know people. Judah was not good at listening to God's promise. Instead, the king of Judah sent money to the king of Assyria, hoping that he would come and protect him, which meant he dishonored God. And guess what? He brought Judah to the attention of the evil nation that crushed Israel and Syria and then made them pretty much a slave state to Assyria for the next several decades. Gotta love national leadership, folks. So for the people of Judah, though, watching from the south, they're not really trusting God. They've see, they're seeing the fall of a powerful neighboring kingdom. They're seeing the, the, the attention of their conquerors turning to look at them now. That would have been terrifying. And that would cause despair. Can you imagine how you would feel if you were a citizen of Judah, knowing that your king had just gotten the attention of the nastiest empire on earth? Would you like that? It might, in fact, bring upon you and on your soul a season of gloom. That's the emotion God is putting before us in chapter 9. The darkness and gloom of those who were carried off and the darkness and fear of those who watched. Isaiah 8.22 and then 9.1. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. 
But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. How dark it must seem to the people whose armies had been crushed. How terrible it must have felt if you were in the south and you saw the people in the north, the people of Israel, being led away captive, some in chains, some with hooks through their jaws. It was ugly and nasty, but God has a promise and he wants them to see it. In the middle of the darkness, in the middle of the hardship, in the middle of the terror, in the middle of the gloom, God says there's going to come a day when the gloom is going to be broken. In the land of Galilee, in the northern kingdom, light is going to dawn. Though the stretch of land called the way of the sea was the very route that the Assyrians used as they marched in to destroy Israel, that very land will one day see the greatest possible joy. Verses 2 and 3 of Isaiah 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them as light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So in the middle of a land that's going to be full of gloom, light is going to one day be seen. In the middle of a land that is full of beaten down, conquered people, God is going to give joy. The people will rejoice as if they are the victorious ones. They're going to party like an army that's dividing up the treasures that it's just won. Verses 4 and 5. For the yoke of his burden and the staff from his shoulder, the rod from his oppressor, you've broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burnt as fuel for the fire. God says, I'm going to break the power of these oppressing armies. God said, it's going to be just like the day when Gideon and his little band of 300 men were able to, with a really clever trick, defeat 135,000 of the Midianites. A day will come in which God, by an amazing show of his power, will drive the sadness and gloom away from those who are his people. Now, God didn't tell us how he was going to do this yet. But God made a promise. And we need to see the promise before we see how it happens. God told the people of Israel and Judah that there's going to be a time of great sadness, great gloom, but God told them that their sadness will not last forever. The darkness will give way to the dawn. The hurt will give way to joy. Psalm 30 verse 5 says, For his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. 
there may be gloom. There may be sorrow. There may be great hardships. But for those who are the children of God, the gloom is temporary. God God promises. God promises, and he never lies, that the darkness will give way to dawn. He promises that the gloom will be broken. He promises that evil will be defeated. He promises that in the end, joy will come. We've all gone through hard times at one point or another, haven't we? One of the key ways to survive the hardships of any season of life is for you to know that this season will pass. We can live with difficulties if we know that eventually those difficulties will be removed. And be certain of this, only those who are genuinely the children of God, only those made right with God have that as a promise. I'm not giving a nice Hallmark Christmas movie special here that everybody gets just a joyful, happy ending. Only those forgiven of their sins, made part of the family of God, can know for certain that their dark times will give way to marvelous light. Today, hear God's promise because God promised he will overcome the gloom. And what God promised to Ahaz and to Judah in small, he promises to his children, his family in large. Joy will come. Sorrow will end. Hear this truth. Hear it. And let it shine the light of hope into your heart. That will begin to drive away the gloom that you feel in this or in any other season of your life. I said that only God's children can have this hope. So how do you get that hope? Let's look at point number two. Come to Jesus and find victory over the gloom. By the way, you find victory over a lot more than that, but it makes the point sound nice if I say find victory over the gloom. Look at verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. How will God win the victory? How will God drive away the enemies of Judah? How will God free his people from the oppression of evil rulers built on their destruction? In an even greater way, how will God bring us all hope from the darkness and the evil of this sin-darkened, damaged, fallen, ruined world? Isn't it amazing that the answer is, again, through a child? To us, a child is born. A child will come. A baby will be born. And when that child comes, and he comes 
He'll make the difference. He will free us. He will defeat the darkness. A single child is the key. The center of God's entire plan. We already read the passage in Isaiah 7 where God told the people that a child would be born who was called Emmanuel. The word Emmanuel means God with us. And by the way, it's true that the son of Isaiah, in a symbolic sense, fulfilled the promise that God made in chapter 7. Isaiah's son would be born and he would, before he knew right from wrong, the Assyrians and the Ephraimites would be defeated. Isaiah's child was a sign to the people that God was with his people. But as I told you, that promise has a dual fulfillment. Isaiah's son only depicted, only foreshadowed the actual focus of the promise. When we see that another child is coming, another son is to be born, we see that God has an even greater fulfillment. Emmanuel will come. God will actually be with us. And this promised child, he's going to set the world right. How do you know? The government will be on the shoulder of this child. The one to come is going to reign as a ruler. Though God's people may suffer darkness at the hands of the world, eventually an ultimate king is going to come who will reign as the supreme governor over all things. Isn't it nice to know that somebody's coming to govern? I don't know. It depends who the governor is, doesn't it? If I just told you in general somebody's coming to govern, maybe. Maybe that's good. If I told you somebody is going to rule the world, is that good news? It really depends, doesn't it? It depends on what kind of ruler he will be. If I told you Ben was going to rule the world, you'd have questions. But the four descriptions in verse 6 are very good signs. He's going to be called Wonderful Counselor. The one to come is going to have wisdom. Wisdom the like of which the world has never seen. He's going to be so wise, so glorious in his counsel that the world will know he is wonderful. Supernaturally wonderful. His wisdom will leave people astounded. Now, what if I told you we had a ruler coming who is a wonderful counselor. How would you like to know that the affairs of the nations were under the watchful eye of the wisest person ever to exist? That sounds good so far, right? Do you see any comparison contrast to the world you live in right now? How many of you believe the governing rulers of our land and other lands around us are the wisest people ever to live? Okay, the one to come will be the mighty God. Not only is the coming ruler wise, he's also powerful. He's mighty. 
He's the mightiest of the mighty. He's not mighty like a man is mighty. No, the one to come is indeed the mighty God come to earth. No one will defeat him. No one will overthrow him. He's too wise to be fooled, and he's too strong to be crushed. This is very good. He'll be the everlasting father. You know, in the old days, if you want to get this phrase right, you need to understand that kings who were wise, who were venerable, who were kind, good kings, they were thought of as fathers over the land. He'll be a father to his people. The one to come, he'll be the father who lasts forever. He'll be the father for all eternity. He will be a ruler beloved of his people. This is very, very good. He'll also be the Prince of Peace. As a ruler, he's not going to merely be the authority. He will bring peace. In a world where violence and rebellion, lawlessness seem to reign, the coming one is going to bring peace. This is very, very, very good. For the people who would suffer such dark days and such gloom, the coming of a child who would be all that was just promised would be a ray of hope shining in their hearts. And for you and me, he's already come. The child has been born. The son has been given. The government of the universe is already upon his shoulder. He's the wonderful counselor, wise and willing to help. He's the mighty God, God with us in strength. He's the everlasting father, a beloved father figure to be with us forever. He's the prince of peace, bringing us the most important peace of all, peace with God. Who is that child? Hmm. Of course, it's Jesus. God the Son came to earth. Jesus was literally born of a virgin. Jesus is literally Emmanuel, God with us, God in flesh. Jesus is the wonderful counselor, wiser and more noble than King Solomon. Jesus is the mighty God who came to earth, truly divine, gloriously worthy to reign. Jesus is the everlasting Father, the beloved ruler over us for all eternity. Don't be confused, by the way. I'm not saying Jesus is God the Father. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are three persons of the one Holy Trinity. I'm saying that we love Jesus as our King the way a nation would love its fatherly ruler. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He brings us peace with God. You want hope to drive away the darkness and the gloom of life? You want, you want hope for the future? Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and be forgiven of your sins. Come to Jesus and remember that the eternal plan of God is being accomplished and cannot be stopped. Come to Jesus and remember that all who trust in Jesus and his saving life, death, and resurrection will be made into the children of God. Come to Jesus and you will find victory over the dark hardships of this life. No, he may not make your life easy in the here and now. You may not get a new house, a new car, or a new job by coming to Jesus. 
but he will give you hope, he will give you joy, and he will give you peace with God forever, and those are worth far more. How can you be sure that the child we're talking about is Jesus? How can we know that God means that this is going to last forever? Third point, final point. Look forward to the coming of Christ's victorious kingdom. Look forward to the coming of Christ's victorious kingdom. Isaiah 9 verse 7 says, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Right away we see that the one to come, how long will his kingdom last? It'll last forever. Of the increase of his kingdom, there will be no end. He will stretch peace from here to eternity. But then we see this is going to happen on the throne of David. God promised David years before this passage that David would have a descendant of his on the throne forever. I'll just read for you 2 Samuel seven sixteen, which says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God speaking to David. But now, back in our passage here in Isaiah, God tells us the one who will set right a world gone wrong is the one who will be on David's throne forever. And the throne of David is going to be established with two things, with justice and righteousness. We know these things are wonderfully good things. And we know when we look at the person and work of Jesus that justice and righteousness mark his life and his ministry. Get this. Jesus lived the only ever totally, perfectly, infinitely right, righteous human life. Jesus as God in human flesh is the only man who never sinned and who always did what was right. His righteousness was flawless. But Jesus also went to the cross and suffered the penalty of justice for the sins of other people. Jesus showed us that God is just, that God rightly punishes sin, while God is perfectly loving and perfectly merciful, forgiving every single person who will put his soul's faith in Christ. And then in the last two lines of the passage for today, we see that this kingdom will come and it's going to stand forever because God's zeal, God's joy, God's passion for his own glory is going to make it all happen. God's plan is set and nobody will ever defeat it. In case you don't know, this kingdom has come. And in case you don't know, this kingdom is still coming. God sent us the child. 
God sent God the Son. Jesus was born. God with us. In his first appearing, Jesus began his reign. He began the establishment of his kingdom. Jesus ministered in Galilee. He shined the light of hope on that land that was once called the way of the sea or Galilee of the nations, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the land beyond the Jordan. We saw that in Isaiah 9.1. Jesus paid the penalty for the sins of all who were going to be his followers. He made a way for people like you and like me not to have to die in our sin and suffer the wrath of God forever, but instead to be forgiven because our sins are paid for by Jesus. All we've got to do is believe in Jesus to place our, our, our faith, our full trust in Jesus to be forgiven. All you got to do is turn from your sin, turn to Jesus, and you will be forgiven. And Jesus is coming to set up, finalize his kingdom. He's going to come back to this earth. He's alive right now, and he's going to come back. And the next time he comes, he's not going to come as a lowly baby in a stable, lying in a manger. Jesus is going to come as the glorious King of kings and Lord of lords, and every knee will bow before him. Every person who has ever lived from the dawn of time to the last moment will bow and every human tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's the question. What's this got to do with victory over your gloom? Like we said earlier, you can live through most anything if you know there's something good on the other side of it, can't you? As the gloom of the Christmas season sets in on some of you, remember that Christmas is not actually about the things that the world magnifies. It's about Jesus. God come to earth. The promised king. The one who reigns as the Lord and king forever. Do you need help? He's the wonderful counselor. You need strength? He's the mighty God. You need tenderness and love. He's the everlasting father. You need peace. He's the prince of peace. You need hope. His kingdom will come and his will shall be done. Focus on Jesus and he will help you walk through the gloom as you set your eyes on his glorious victory. What an amazing thing, this victory, this hope, this promise would be fulfilled by God the Son coming to earth as a truly human baby. How glorious. Jesus humbled himself to take on humanity. He was born in a very ordinary way. The God of the universe was pleased to place him in a humble crib. Can you fathom the God of the universe wearing human skin laying in a manger? A little animal feeding trough. And there lies the most glorious being ever to exist. And that baby grew up to perfectly fulfill the law of God. He did every right thing we could ever be required to please God. He died as a sacrifice for the sins of the people he would save. He rose from the grave as the one who conquers death. The birth of that Savior is worth celebrating. Now, let me be sure you get this. 
to celebrate this Savior and to get the hope that defeats the gloom and the darkness of your sin, you've got to be saved. You guys hear that term, but let me be sure you get it. If you're hearing my voice, if you're here today, or if you're hearing me online later, if you don't know Jesus or if you're not sure, this is the command of God Almighty. Turn to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Repent and believe and be saved. You can't do a thing on your own to make yourself right with God. You can't be good enough. You can't be smart enough. You can't give away enough. You can't do enough good work to impress God. That's not how it works. Instead, you turn away from embracing sin in your life. You turn away from trusting yourself as your own master. And you turn to Jesus in your heart. You believe that Jesus is God the Son. You believe that he lived a perfect life that you could never live. Believe that he died on a Roman cross to pay the penalty for your sins. He took a death that would cost you forever in hell. Believe that Jesus rose from the grave. Believe that Jesus is alive today. Believe that Jesus is going to return as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Believe in Jesus. Surrender your life to follow Jesus. Cry out to Jesus for mercy. Ask him to save your soul and you too can experience the glorious victory that we see being won even on Christmas. Let's pray together, dear friends. God, you're good. And I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for the grace that you've given us in Jesus. I thank you for the mighty victory won by Jesus. And I would simply ask you, Lord, that as we are here today, a couple things that happen. Number one, for every Christian in this room, every genuine believer, I pray that you would instill in our hearts a deep joy because of who Christ is and what he's done. I pray for every one of us that you would instill in us a hope that will defeat life's hardships as we focus on the Savior and the promise and not on ourselves, and not on our circumstance and not on self-pity and not on earthly pain, not on fear, but on forever with the Savior. And I pray that anybody who doesn't know Jesus would surrender to him today and cry out to him with the faith of a child. Lord Jesus, forgive me my sins. Have mercy on me. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Take over my life. God, I pray you'll be magnified in our church as we have great, great joy in the Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.